Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we're very happy to have harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani join us. Mahan, it's very nice to meet you. It's really a pleasure to meet you on here. We've been trying to set this up for quite a few weeks, and unfortunately, the way things have happened in the world, it hasn't been that easy. How's the lockdown treating you? Well, there's barely a lockdown. I mean, I went to a concert last night. Really? Yeah, I went to a concert in Prague, and I played a concert over the weekend in Leipzig, and the week before that, I played another concert in Prague. So, I mean, stuff's happening. Um, You know, you can't say that things are exactly normal, but last night... Um, last night felt rather as normal as it gets. I mean, the hall was packed. We were all kind of jowl to jowl and, or cheat to jowl, whatever they say. And, uh, I can't say that there was any notion of anything different, except that, uh, there was a palpable sense that people were quite grateful to be there. I think the uh, normal anxieties of concert goers, particularly in Central Europe, you know, people are sure to dress up, people are anxious about who's there, who sees what, you know, when they clap. I think a lot of these anxieties were quite secondary out of, uh, I don't like this sort of sentimental language, but I mean, there, there was a sort of gratitude to be there. And, you know, it doesn't really get better with the, than the fact that one of the pieces was the Mozart clarinet concerto and that middle movement. Yeah. You know, it's not that it makes life, life better, but it makes life more bearable. And I, I I couldn't really imagine a, a, a better return to all of this. So the Czech Republic wasn't hit too much by the disease. Well, I think, uh, the, the Czech Republic addressed things so early and with such, um, vehemence uh, at a point where everyone else said, this is nuts. These guys are nuts. Like, why are they doing this? And yeah, I remember thinking that myself. Mm-hmm. They were, they were super quick on it. And also, I mean, one notion, which I, which I, which maybe is a little crass um, for me to make as an observation is that there's of course, institutional knowledge of how to control yes, people. And that's of course, true. People will, people will generally follow rules, but also, um, you know, fundamentally it is a, part of the world where people think, well, if it's going to hurt the guy next door and that could hurt my health, then I'll just do it. I'll put on the mask. I'll do what I have to do. And I think um, uh, it's been an interesting time for those of us who observe, um, you know, sort of mass behaviors. Let's put it that way. Do they by any chance have a female head of state? (laughs) Slovakia does. Slovakia's president, um, Čaputova, who's amazing and who's also um, an environmentalist. Uh, No, the Czech... President and uh, uh, Prime Minister are both what, I mean, I think charitably we would describe as schmucks. Um, But um, I have to say they handled it. I mean, the head of state is just the head of state. But, you know, it's been handled quite well. And, you know, at the beginning of this whole um, crisis, if you want to call it that, I was in Miami where uh, I was doing Zanakis. That got canceled. And then I came to England where everything got canceled, but I did a recording. And from, them, from there, I came to uh, the Czech Republic. And just to see how well everything was handled. I mean, look, going from London where a guy offered me 20 quid on the street for my mask, wow. right? And, and arriving in Prague where everything was just 
super yeah. orderly. And there was no, I think more importantly that you didn't feel fear. Yeah. Um, that's been very uh, valuable. Okay. Cause we've talked to a number of musicians since the lockdown, mostly here in the UK, but some in the U S as well. And none of them have the experience that you have. At least they didn't have the experience when we talked to them, you know, a month or two ago. So I think it's great that music is coming back. We were just talking about Alina Ibragamova's concert at Wigmore Hall, uh, empty hall, you know, violin and piano. At least that's a start. But it's going to be a long, long time here before anything like that happens. It's going to be a while. Although, heck, I mean, if you think about it, this whole saga has been three months. So, you know, things have gone both more slowly, but I also, I also think things have gone much more quickly than we thought. And, you know, they, uh, I always like to think that the truth is not as bad as the worst prediction and not as good as the best prediction. So, you know, we'll see. But I, I mean, Wigmore, John Gilhuli, he should get knighted after this. Like if there's, if there's one hall manager who has stepped up, it is John Gilhuli. It is amazing. Yeah. That's funny. We were just talking about how we well, I was noticing, because it's not the sort of thing I notice, but Wigmore Hall just keeps popping up in the news lately, and they seem to be, you know, what's the big deal here? And you're attributing it to the way it's managed, and that's just, that's a, that's a good thing. Well, what do we say in English? We say political will. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> if you watch the sort of Twitter wars and the ideological wars, there's a great rejection of great man theory, or let's say great human theory. Mm. Um, but this is an instance where you can only explain it through the will of one person yeah. who decided this has to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, great, great people do appear in history. Yeah. So, um, For better or for worse, they, they can be Julius Caesar or they can be, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, but, that's right. That's okay, right. well, let's get away from the politics and all that. I, you know, I was just saying to Doug, yesterday I realized that this time is like waiting for Gado. I get up in the morning, I look at the news, I'm like, okay, is it going to be good news? And at the end of the day, the boy comes and said, we're sorry, I'm sorry, Mr. Gatto will come again tomorrow. And it feels like that. So we need to move on and we need to do what we can in the time that we can. I mean, it's particularly sensitive here. I live just a few miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, the theater's shuttered, and it's going to be shuttered for a long time. and As they often were in Shakespeare's time. Well, that's course. true. They're particularly as, as in the early days of the lockdown, people were, everyone on Twitter was saying, yes, but that's when Shakespeare wrote King Lear. Um, I, I hope we don't get too many people writing King Lear because that's a little bit depressing. <laughs> so you were born in Iran. You grew up in the United States. You lived in London, Milan, and now you're in Prague. That's right. When are you going to settle down? I am settled down. I am not leaving Prague. Really? I have, I have the stress of a kitchen renovation to show it as well. I am <laughs> like, after we finish renovating this house, I am not leaving. Um, I have seen too many um, granite um, countertop samples. <laughs> so how old were you when you went to the States? Oh, I was three. I went with my father. Oh, okay. I mean, my father came earlier. My father had studied in the United States in the 70s. But then, like every reasonable Iranian, he went back because he thought it's a great country and we're going to build up the country. And then, and then everything changed. And um, yeah, no, I grew up in D.C. and I went to college in California. And uh, but you know what? Um, you in a you, as Persians say, you shut your eyes and you open them, and it's all of a sudden been 15 years in Europe. Yeah. And um, 
you know, it's nice to also feel European, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I'm, yeah. but I'm still an American too, you know. Yeah, well, you're still an American, an Iranian, and everything else. And so you said you grew up speaking French. Why? Uh, because I studied in school really early on, and my written Farsi was never good enough to write letters to my grandfather. I mean, I can ah. write, I can read Farsi fine, but I was, I was never a great. Uh, I've never been a great writer in Persian. It's just, it's just not the language that comes to me the most naturally. Um, so, he, so he spoke French, and so our, I have a pile of correspondence from childhood to university in French with him, and we always spoke in French, and you know, it was just. It was. He was always a big intellectual influence on me. So all of our meaningful uh, intellectual interaction was in French. So when I was talking to my partner last night and saying, "Yeah, we're interviewing this really great harpsichordist tomorrow," she's not really into music. She said to me, "How does someone decide to play the harpsichord? It's not like there's harpsichords just laying around." That's what I say. There aren't just <laughs> harpsichords lying around. That's absolutely true, though. The thing is, I just got to get this out because it's been bugging me since we talked to Richard Agar. The piano made it into modernism with, you know, you could play yeah. rock and roll on it, on the organ, and you can hear it in soul music. And where's the harpsichord? The only time you ever hear it is when someone wants to have that elitist sort of upper class flavor but there's no, I mean, you know, in popular Or in the Adams family. Yeah, yeah. I think, I always find it interesting that Americans, for being a nation that claims to be individualist, are the only people who go along with this group think. I, um, I've never quite understood why. I mean, this album that, I've, that will be released quite soon, um, Musique, which is all of electronic and new music for harpsichord, more or less disproves that point. I mean, the harpsichord... Now, the harpsichord had a gap in the 19th century, but, like, well, lots of things have gaps in the 19th century. You know, it's not really... It's, it doesn't... I mean, it's funny that we're still so beholden to the 19th century that if something doesn't exist, yeah. then we go, like, it drives us nuts, right? But, um, no, no, your point, nonetheless, is a... I don't mean to... I don't mean to mock the point. Well, it's a mockable point, for sure. I mean, certainly a facetious point. It, it is, but it's also a, it's also a conversation starter. <laughs> exactly. No, it's a very good conversation starter. I mean, the thing is, is that um, when modernism came on the scene, the harpsichord was very much there. Uh, I mean, all of the great modern composers had some interaction with it. Even John Cage, who didn't like the instrument. I mean, by the way, John Cage didn't like lots of instruments. I mean, Mozart didn't like the flute. You know, nobody goes around blaming the flute, though God knows they do deserve it. But, um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, even John Cage wrote for the harpsichord. I mean, there's a lot of, and, and, and actually funny enough, you know, I didn't record Cage, but he's kind of the elephant, I think, in the room simply for, for everyone who's tr trying to find unfettered ways of expressing themselves, right? So I think what's really interesting is that the harpsichord, particularly, and funny enough, I didn't record any music from Eastern Europe on this album, but in Eastern Europe, because there wasn't a big harpsichord tradition the way that there was in France or in English music, Eastern Europeans, you know, Ligeti and these guys, Schnitka, they just latch onto it because it has kind of no, um, you know, it has sort of no institutional memory, right? It has no right. association. You know, no connotations. It, it has no connotations, exactly. And uh, so that's kind of, I think, fun. I mean, what's really interesting is that in communist countries, because the harpsichord was associated with feudalism, it was a counterculture instrument. Oh, you know, yeah. It was, a, it was pretty okay. punk kind of yeah. of writing for it. Uh, so, you know, this, this one album is of 
you know, many I hope to do. I mean, I've recorded, I recorded Ligeti's works in the past, but I mean, that's pretty, you know, done and dusted more or less as far as this instrument is concerned. Um, the last piece on the, on music is the big, um, uh, music socialist, um, by, uh, Luc Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing piece. And I mean, now that the talk of relativism has come up again in popular discourse, one of the great achievements of Western music is that, is that what is notated even across boundaries of, you know, time, place, whatever, is that something is notated even in a, in a somewhat aleatoric sense, as is the case with Ferrari, wherein you can hear a personality and the inner thoughts of someone that is, that is such an achievement. You know, you can hear that in terms of improvisation in many musical cultures. I mean, Iranian music for, you know, for one, but the fact that you could notate something and 500 years later or 50 years later or whatever, that it could communicate thought and emotional patterns of a human being. That's massive. Yeah. If you, if you think of something like Dowland's Lacrimae, which is what, from the late 15th century, mm-hmm. um, it like can it's, still move people. Sorry, late 16th, sorry. Yeah, no. It can still move people today. It, it still has an emotional power, in spite of the fact that our culture and our ideas of emotions have changed over time. I th- and I think what's remarkable is, look, we've been talking for like, what, 10 minutes so far, right? So we get a sense for each other's you know, personality and, and were we sitting at a table with a bottle or something, we would get a sense of each other's personality. But if I never knew either of you and I heard a great piece of music by either of you, yeah. in some ways I would get to know you better than if we sat days yeah. with one another. Like what I heard last night with the Mozart clarinet concerto, there are no words that he can say. I mean, he was on the journey between Vienna and Prague. You know, he had lost his shirt over going to produce Clemenza de Tito. There's this whole distillation of this life of this person who's kicked around by a real asshole father. And then kind of nobody gets him in Vienna and, and everything else that hasn't been recorded. But in that, but in that, in that middle movement, you, that, that is communicated. And so that's the, um, that's the gift of that art form. So you've recorded, uh, I, I'm almost tempted to say you've recorded some of the compulsory works, the Goldberg Variations and Bach's Toccatas, but you've also recorded Hamo and C.P.E. Bach, and you've recorded uh, an album of the English Virginalists. And also you've done all this contemporary music, which there's not a, there aren't a lot of harpsichordists that play the contemporary music. In particular, you've... Let's see, you've got Goreski next to Scarlatti, and you've got Steve Reich, I Love Your Piano Phase by Steve Reich on presumably Time Present and Time Past. You chose that name because of the T.S. Eliot reference. Yeah, I was on the beach in Alborough, and I, and I was reading it, and I thought, oh, that's the name of the album. Perfect. Do you know, I actually live about five miles from Burnt Norton. Cool. But you can't visit it. And I've, I, I remember actually we, want, we tried to find it, and it's really hard to find. And I had to use Google satellite images to look at some old photos t- to find where it is. I really have to go there one day. But you can't visit No, it's privately owned. I need to sneak in there one day to get photos in the Rhodes Garden and... Are they the kind of owners who will, like, shoot? I don't know. I don't know. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know Warwickshire that well. Man. Yeah. Could be. Yeah, yeah. Well, they might. They might. 
But they have done a reading of the four quartets with Jeremy Irons there. And he did one not long ago in Oxford as well. He's done it a few times. He's recorded it for the BBC. Oh, all right. I'll have to check that out. Um, I love Jeremy Irons. Yeah, I do. And I love T.S. Eliot, too. Definitely some of my favorite stuff. So have you met with any... Opposition's not the word. Any hesitation, trepidation about recording these contemporary works? Um, I think maybe the maybe the word we're looking for is misunderstanding. Okay. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think one really weird thing is that we have created uh, a kind of I want to say bifurcated, but a sort of quadrifurcated or whatever, quintifurcated or whatever. Um, we've created a listening public based on sort of marketing um, techniques, right? So we have like, and, and you know, in Germany, for example, you have the abonnement, right? Like you have the um, season subscriptions and then people subscribe according to what they like, which I think is a really weird way of subscribing. Like, so, dude, so it's, it's like so, picking three out of six concerts or something, right? Yeah, which is of stuff that you're inclined to like, yeah. which I don't, really, I don't really dig that way of thinking anyway. But I mean, uh, you know, in the case of, um, so we have like an early music audience, we have a, song audience we have a new music audience that sort of thing and i don't like none of the musicians that i know and respect listen to music like that at all like i think of someone like you know elon volkov the israeli conductor who's a good friend of mine who introduced me to a lot of music he listens to everything he he has a keen ear for everything you know this is someone that i whom i respect uh, you know, deeply. Nicholas Daniel, the oboist, is like that. Um, uh, you know, I've never met Kirill Petrenko, but I suspect he's one of these kind of thinkers. And, uh, you know, um, what that does is that it puts um, strictures on musicians that have no, well, they have no basis in philosoph philosophical thinking of any value, but they also have no basis in history, right? So, like, uh, for example, there will be people who, like, I mean, I play a lot of Bach. Like, I play virtually all the works of Bach, which I'm recording. I just recorded the partitas, and I'm performing all of them constantly. And there'll be people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, you don't play, like, in that festival or that series of early music because, you know, you're really seen as a contemporary music guy. And then the contemporary music guys will say, oh, well, we thought you were more of an early music guy. And it's like, dude, you use your brains, people. <laughs> like, you know, there's this... There's this notion. I, I recently had some news about some. I don't want to. I don't want to go into detail about it. But there was something that I. There was a jury for something, uh, a, a award for something which I didn't get, and one of the complaints was, "Oh, well, you know, you don't really jive with the early music thing." And it's like, well, I play harpsichord, so I don't have to jive with anything. Like I can jive with whatever I feel like, and, you know. Did you ever stop to think that maybe they don't drive with me? Like, I don't, you know, I believe in, I do play with a number of period ensembles, but I play with them because they're good musicians, not because they play a squeaky violin off the chin. Like, I don't care about that, you know? And, <laughs> and if you want to talk about research and sources, like, I'll talk with you about research and sources in the original languages. Like, you want to yeah. do that? Let's, let's show down. Like, let's do it. So I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the, um, kind of um, classifications are highly performative and and I think they come out of insecurity and misunderstanding the instrument I mean you know the kazoo has an easier time of it than the harpsichord in this respect right like hey I saw a group 
called Kazoophony in the late 1970s at Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center do a whole concert. There's like eight kazoo players with, you know, everything from, from, from soprano kazoo down to bass kazoo. I'm telling you, it was pretty cool. I was in a marching kazoo band <laughs> in South Jersey. <laughs> I don't know what that we were thinking. Sound, that sounds like a very South Jersey thing. Yeah, it was a very South Jersey thing. <laughs> where, like Montclair? Or no, in like Cape May or something. Down there oh, we had a, that. there was some parade and I was working at a radio station one day. And we said, you know what we want to do? We want to get a kazoo marching band and we're going to, we're going to just, you know, if you listeners want to be in the parade. So we had like, you know, 30, 40 people show up and with kazoos and we all just, all right, we're going to, what, what song you want? We had to work out what songs we were going to do. It's just, you don't want to hear about this. No, I, but, but anyway, I, I, well, actually, yeah. maybe you do because it's yeah. it, it was quite uh, it was quite a job to you know coordinate and, a bunch and of that, kazoo players. And that sounds kind of like a Charles Ives thing, doesn't it? A marching band <laughs> yeah. with kazoos that that comes up across a marching band that's just percussion. <laughs> yes, but it has, to be, it has to be like burnished brass American-made kazoos you know, with Ives, right? artisanal Brooklyn kazoos. Yeah, artisanal kazoos, and then and then Ives like you know. He has, to, he has to remember, like, his mother chucking out his kazoo or something. I don't know. I've, I'm going through an Ives thing right now. But, but, but your point yeah. is that there's no inferior instrument, that if it makes music, it's a valid instrument. Not only is it a valid instrument, but that, like, a real instrument presumably has no um, kind of extra musical strictures on it, right? I mean, every instrument has things it can do and it can't do. No one's doubting that. But, like, but presumably every instrument can find a way to express itself. And like I play the harp. So, oh yeah. So the question is like, how did you come to play the harpsichord? I I played the piano. My father played the piano. Like I was always, I, but I was always fascinated by the harpsichord. I came to the harpsichord because, and I stayed with the harpsichord. More importantly, is because it's the way that I express myself. It's the way that I feel most comfortable expressing myself. I like playing the piano. Don't get me wrong. Like it's fun. I go to friends' houses and we sing and drink and we play the piano. But it's not me. Uh, I respect it. Like I think. One thing that's very dangerous, especially you see this in millennials now, is anything that's not in people's direct experience, they just reject. No, 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 no. Like, the piano's not me, but I am. I listen to a ton of piano. I respect the piano, but it's just not, it's just not who I am. Where did you first run up against the, the harpsichord to, to, to get the hots for it? A bunch, a bunch of cassettes from the local library. <laughs> well, I mean, when did you actually run into the, the machine itself? Did you did you go out of your way to, to have to find it or I listened to all these cassettes and then I think back then like if you didn't return the recordings they would just charge you for the price of the recordings so it was just like I just Oh I was going I thought you were going to say they decided to bring you a harpsichord because you <laughs> Yeah yeah no exactly. No um yeah no you know librarians leaving dead squirrels in your something <laughs> like that but um so I was really into it and so I pestered my parents to take me to concerts where there might be harpsichord and might be and would, so you weren't even sure i wasn't even sure but i would just i would obsess or like i have i have to see one of these i have to see what it's like yeah i have to see what it looks like i had no concept of it my father was like i don't really think people are playing the harpsichord anymore i said no no no. we have to we, this, we've got to do this and even in a frankly podunk musical town like washington dc which it still is, let's be honest. Yeah. Like, it, they they were chances to hear a harpsichord now and then, and I just like that's where the love affair, you know, it's like it's like if it were a person, we'd call this stalking, right? <laughs> that's where that's basically where I was a stalker. 
And and this was in the 1990s, right? So you were born in 1984. Um, so in the 90s, is already the CD era. There were all sorts of recordings. I mean, you could buy Scott Ross's 555 Scarlatti sonatas on in that big box set of CDs. So they were available. If you go back, like in my youth in the late 70s, early 80s, you could get harpsichord things on DG records or archive records, you know, all the Gustav Leonhardt and all that, but it wasn't that common. No, of course. I mean, um, Trevor Pinnock was one of the first people I heard. But at the same time, I, I wasn't really like discriminating in the sense that I didn't have a notion of what's proper and what's not, right? Right. So I also had a ton of Landowska. It always spoke to me. Landowska always spoke to me. I'm not saying everything she did, like there's some, like there's definitely some crazy air, but, but, you know, Landowska, Ralph Kirkpatrick, like some of the old, they were like, remember when East German labels yeah. were, were like super cheap? They were like $1, yeah. like a CD. So you would get Eterna and Hungaroton. Yep. So I would get like Janos Sebastian and Hans Pischner and like the Tomonarchor from Leipzig. And like you would get all this super cheap Eastern Bloc stuff. And, and even earlier than that, do you remember the Musical Heritage Society? Super well, of course. Yeah, and you'd get these really obscure things, but they were like they were like flashes of light in in a landscape that you didn't know anything about. Yeah, man. I mean, I think the thing that really shocks me today is when I talk to younger musicians or I teach some. It's like they don't listen to recordings. Yeah, you think you know they don't have that kind of nerdy love. One thing that really upsets me about the whole, like, classical music needs to be cooler and be down with the kids is, like, we were not the cool kids in school. <laughs> we were the, right? Like, we weren't the jocks. Like, let's be honest. Like, the You were in the us, AV club like me and Doug. <laughs> we were not playing lacrosse, right? Like, we were, like, checking out recordings, and we were, yeah. you know, like, I remember Bitches Brew when I was, like, 13, and, like, just the chance to say bitch Without being yeah. right? you know, and like, what was that? Um, the Duke Ellington, the one he, the thing he did with Max Roach at the end of his life, and it was like Max Roach, Duke Ellington, and, and Mingus, right? And I remember at the same time, my piano teacher had assigned me to play the two fugues from Musical Offering, which Bach writes at the end of his life. And so, this notion of like, here's two great men at the very end of life, totally breaking music. That's really what they're doing, right? Like Bach is definitely lighting a match and he's like, let's burn this down, right? Like he's totally using that. And you hear it in Ellington, right? Because when he gets old, he's like, he's rediscovered by the white guys. And like he goes, he goes to Newport and everyone's like, isn't, isn't jazz just lovely? And, and so and Ellington on that album is like, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, jazz is lovely, right? And he and Bach, and I remember that's when that's when I realized like Bach was also a person who wasn't appreciated for a lot of his life. He was also a, a human being. He was also an old man and he, and he, he turns modern music on its, that it's such a powerful image to see that those two men are very similar. And yet Bach was so workmanlike churning out a cantata a week or other things just because he had to do it. It wasn't even that, oh, I've got this flash of inspiration. I'm going to compose some music. It was like he had to do it. And the muse was just flowing through him for his entire career. Yes. I mean, I think, but it's what, it's what I think is that there's that Stravinsky quote about the art actually is the craft. Yeah. You got to get the craft down yeah. to do the art. And Bach is the, Bach is the eternal Bach and Ellington, too. You know, they are the craftsmen. Yeah. So, how come you haven't recorded any Morton Feldman? 
There's not for harpsichord. I would love well, to. Of course there isn't, but you recorded um, Piano Phase. That wasn't written for harpsichord. Oh, man. You know what? I've got a you know, Marc-Andre Hamelin and I are very good friends, and he did that lovely, he did the for Bonita Marcus yeah, album. Yeah, so we spoke with him about a month ago about that. Oh, he's so great. And, yep. It, it's, a, it's a really, really, something about that recording that's magical. It takes you to a space and holds you there for more than an hour. I know. I've got to, um, I've got to find some Feldman and see what I could do with it. Funny enough, there's a, um, there's a, there's a cocktail bar very close to my apartment, like two minutes down the street. And I stop in, there are some nights and the bartender's a very cool guy. And some days I stop in there just for coffee, like on the way to something. And the other day I stopped in, we had a very weird conversation where he was basically extolling to me the virtues of LSD. And I was, and it was one of those conversations where it's like, that's great. I have to get going now. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, Michael, you're always telling me about, about drugs and I'm not really interested, but you know, we should sit and listen to Morton Feldman together. And so I'm going to have him come over one night and put on Marc Andre's album and say, yeah. this, this is my version of, <laughs> of what you're extolling. Cause it is, it, it is, you know, I remember I was probably 16 or 17 and I was at a friend's house. I grew up listening to rock. I'm a deadhead. Where did you grow up? In New York City, Queens. And this friend of mine, who is now a music critic for Rolling Stone, etc., he pulled out this black Deutsche gramophone box and he put on six pianos. And it was like the 20 minutes or so of that just changed my life, being able for the first time to hear a music, a piece of music that could do something that different than, you know, the song-based music that I was familiar with. And anything like that, Steve Reich, Morton Feldman, there are just, there's just magic in that type of music. It just wraps you up. It just, I don't like to, to call it trance because it's not really that. It's not that kind of space, but you can go really far in that music. Kind of like, take the 25th variation and the Goldberg variations. I mean, that's a novel. That's like, that's like a film when you listen to that. I think what's remarkable about you know, and I think each each, genera- each genera- generation responds to normalization, right? So your generation responded to the idea of, like, you know, the normalization after World War II, right? And, like, the you know, the Vietnam generation and all that, right? Like, my generation has responded to the notion of that there was an end of history after the fall of communism, right? And so what our generation's what we've sought to do is to ask questions like we, I th- and I think that we embrace um, the art that asks questions, which is why it's very troubling to see now people younger than me being very definitive on questions. I'm not, I, 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 I don't like, I feel there's a new definitiveness. Um, there's a new kind of earnest seriousness, which is, which I find deeply uncomfortable. Uh, and, um, you know, this is where you see the achievement of someone like Glenn Gould, right? Where Glenn Gould, the, the reason why he enters the public imagination is because he shows the generation questioning normalization. He shows them the power of doing that with a composer who we thought answers questions, right? People, in England, there's a saying amongst organists, which is Bach is a composer to have opinions about, right? Bach is seen as a def- definitive composer who answers questions, who has... He's seen as a benchmark to compare other things to. He's a benchmark. He's used for, you know, considerable gatekeeping in music. You know, he's used to teach answers. He's, he's, used, um, he's used to signal virtue, 
right? Yeah. And the fact that Gould constantly asked, and like, if you go and look at all the literature and all the all the journalistic literature when Gould was alive, people hated him. Like, yep. you know, they and they and I didn't even like Gould for years, but then I realized it's actually not. It's the cult around Gould and people who think that they should copy him and that's the answer. They're the ones who get it wrong. It's kind of a notion of like, you know that bumper sticker, like Jesus protect us from your followers, right? And you get that with like the Gould followers are annoying as hell. And Gould, the the fact that you could provocatively answer a question, excuse me, ask a question using articulation in a French suite, like that's what a, what a notion. And only, only recently have I come to see his, his achievement is, uh, plugs in perfectly with that time. It is, it is an amazing achievement. And, and also that wonderful experience when Gould was playing the Brahms piano concerto with Leonard Bernstein and they disagreed and Bernstein came out and said, I disagree, but we're going to do it his way. And you couldn't see that today, could you? Uh, well, first of all, because any soloist, pissing off the stature of a conductor like Bernstein wouldn't even get asked to do the gig, first of all. And secondly, people with a mind as keen as Bernstein's don't get to the top. So, you know, you wouldn't see that. (laughs) That was was a, a very unique time, I think. Yeah. So on your new album, Music with a Question Mark, a lot of these pieces are for harpsichord and electronics. Can you explain what that means, electronics? Electronics, for me, sounds like you plug in a microphone, right? Well, our, our parents' generation would have, said, would have said tape, right? Remember that? Yeah, the yeah. woolen sack. College, yeah. You're like, the hell is tape? Like, so there's the notion of prepared electronics. Um, so, okay. For uh, that's virtually everything that's on this album. I mean, there's no live electronics. I'd love to do an album of like live electronic improvisation. Maybe at some point with um, Hyperion, because they're quite down for the idea. I would do like an EP. I would do an extended play of just like a 30 minute improvisation with live electronics. But um, uh, where somehow like it could feed back and and you could kind of play off of yourself. That would um, I'm, I'm going to keep that idea. But uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking a harpsichord with Frippertronics would be very cool. Yeah, that's what I would, yeah. yeah. It'd be super cool. Um, or like with a, um, what do you call it? A a loop machine. That would be super neat. Um, <clears throat> kind of like what Zoe Keating does, where she records bits oh, of... Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, also yeah, yeah. my friend, I don't know if you know Hakon Kornstad, um, a saxophonist in Norway. He does a lot of that stuff. We did a night of improvisation together at Resor. Um, and the last thing that I improvised on that night was the theme from Godfather, which he never had seen. So he was like, man, that's a great tune. Can I use that for my next album? Like, uh, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. But anyway, um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, electronic. So um, in the case of uh, Sariaho's Jardin Secre, um, Sariaho actually synthesized all of the, the non-live stuff at EarCam. And the funny thing is that she uses synthesized um, techniques to evoke... Uh, you know, natural sounds like the sound of a woman um, breathing and moaning. And like, there's, you know, whereas Anahita Abbasi's piece, Intertwined Distances, I actually played a day of improvisation. She recorded all of that. And all of that material is taken from my harpsichord improvisation, but she synthesizes it in a way where it sounds completely unnatural. So she does the opposite of what, um, what Sariaho does. And I think it, 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 it places a few notions on their, you know, squarely on their head. Um, 
when I was in college, we had um, Phil Ford was the Mellon Fellow at Stanford. Um, he's now at, um, at Indiana University. He runs, I think, the American Music Center, or he's very big there. And Phil Ford, his I think his dissertation at University of Minnesota was at describing, um, you know, the the notion of the fundamental difference between rock and rock and roll was that um, rock and roll recordings replicate what happens on stage. Rock music is a synth- is a synth- essentially synthesized in a form, and in the concert, you're imperfectly trying to reproduce what can only be done in the studio. So I think right. it's interesting that Sariaho and Abbasi um, redefine that in different ways. The Ferrari is a totally different s- situation where he gives the harpsichord a cells of information, you know, basically pitch classes to play off of, but then he's very, he's very unspecific about what you do with them. I mean, his wife helped me prepare the premiere of the piece and she was like, I have no idea. (laughs) So she was, I had to basically get her, her vote on like, was this kosher? Could we go ahead with this and, and do what I, you know, do what I wanted, so to speak. Uh, you know, and what was interesting about that was that, uh, you know, it's all well and good to say, oh, we will reinvent Bach or Beethoven or whatever by doing whatever the heck we want. It's much harder to find within that music and within its traditions and within the, um, you know, you could say within the philological tradition of that music or whatever, um, a way of saying something unheard while still doing honor to the composer and doing honor to the music without being a kind of, you know, authentic kind of nervous Nelly, right? And I think... The Ferrari offered an amazing opportunity um, in doing that. Every time I play the piece, it's different. And yet, every time I've, I've heard recordings of every performance I've done on the piece, and every time you, you know it's Ferrari. You know he's there. Somehow that personality is there in those cells of aleatoric material. That is quite an achievement of notation. So you perform all this live with... A tape recording, or now a digital recording. You you plug an iPod in or something. Um, yeah, I mean, this is where like the sound guys at concert halls yeah. love this, right? Because mostly, what do they, <laughs> yeah. they don't get to do this cool stuff, right? And what's amazing is that now, especially in Europe, the sound guys are all guys in their twenties, and like uh, they're thrilled. The one time yeah. a year they get to do something like this in classical music, and um, yeah. um, actually in the autumn in Linz and in Salzburg, I'm playing. Um, so the first work for harpsichord and electronics was written by an Israeli composer, Yosef Tal, in the 1960s. Super cool. Um, I love Yosef Tal's music in general. And Tal wrote a piece called Concerto for Harpsichord and Electronics, which is just harpsichord and electronics, no orchestra. And I've been in touch with Tal's son. Um, the, Is- the Israel Music Center has the materials for it. But now the issue is, how do we get the electronic material and digitize it? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit of. Actually, the good thing about the lockdown is that there's people who can actually have time to work on it. Yeah, if it's on uh, old tapes, they might need to be restored oh and noise gosh. reduction and yeah, yeah. Um, and one thing that they find with old tapes now, as a fan of the Grateful Dead or a Deadhead, I know that there's something called the plangent process that they use with old tapes to tune them because it 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 picks up the 50 hertz or the 60 hertz hum that's almost inaudible. And since the tapes go at an irregular speed because they've stretched over time, that's the only way to get them precise. That's right. It's amazing what we can do with technology. It is. And um, 
I've got to actually, I mentioned Elon Volkov today. I've got to call him today because there's guys in Tel Aviv who can do this and I just got to, I've just got to get on it. But um, yeah, it's a great, I think one of the things that's important for me is also showing people will be less surprised by the new works for harpsichord if they see that there's a tradition of it already being innovative. So if they see that it was already happening in the 50s and 60s, you know, if people hear Pula and Corfaya, which is in the 1920s, they'll see that, you know, there's already a good hundred years of it being at a forefront. And, uh, you know, we're talking today a lot about inclusivity in music. Um, as you may know, the, the biography of Florence Price, the composer, has just been released. Um, and what's beautiful about that book, I just ordered it, I haven't gotten it yet, is that to, you know, to people who are naysayers, you know, and let's say including more black composers or sort of black female composers, that sort of thing, if you show them, hey, there's a black female composer who's already around in the 1920s and 30s, that, that I think, speaking to um, pre-existing traditions is a, is a strong way of, of acting on inclusivity. You know, it's funny you mention that because there was a day a couple of weeks ago that all of the music streaming services did a thing with black artists. And I put on Apple Music and it was all rap and hip hop. And I was thinking, where's the rest? So it really only took me 15 minutes to make a playlist with black composers going back to the 18th century. It wasn't that hard to find them. I mean, there's not a lot of them in classical music, but you can find them easily. And I was very disappointed that someone like Apple didn't, they just had Beats 1. Why didn't they have a jazz selection? Why didn't they have a classical selection? Blues, where was all the blues? You know, White and Hopkins, Gary Davis. Where was all the Delta music? Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you... The, you know, there's black choral composers. There's like, I know Tr Trevor Weston is a composer who was at St. Thomas in New York, whom I respect very much. Like, no, man, it's, we have to ask deep questions also about how do people, how do people see underrepresented minorities? Like, how do they see them? How do we see them placed culturally? Like, do black people only do popular music? You know, do Iranians only do Iranian music? Yeah. Do white guys, you know? But you you I, I used know. the it's, term yeah. gatekeeper earlier, and I think that's a yeah. lot of it. You've got your uncomfortable concert audience who's going to pay for a subscription, and they want to hear Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, maybe Wagner. And, I mean, how do you do it when you're performing these new works? Do you do a recital just of these works, or do you play some Bach, some Rameau, and then some contemporary? I do yeah. both. I do both. Uh, it depends on what, what pr promoters want, obviously. I do yeah. both. Um, also because that's just what I, how I listen to music. Yeah, yeah. I've mentioned many times, I've got a son who's 29 years old. He lives in Paris. As he was growing up, I tried to turn him into a deadhead. He never really caught on. But he's one of these people that he doesn't, that genres don't exist. Right? He'll listen to music, EDM he's really into. He'll listen to rock. He really likes Pink Floyd. He loves Steve Reich, stuff like Nils Fromm, you know, this new sort of mellow piano music. So we talk about how he organizes his music library in formerly iTunes and now the Apple Music app. It's like, well, I never put genre on. So he just remembers by the artists, like, like we would in our old record collection with the LPs. We didn't sort them by genre. That's right. We sorted them by name. Yeah. Well, or by color or by mood, or I, I knew a guy, he had 2,000 records. Every once in a while, he would spend a weekend changing the order, you know, of how he would sort them. But the point is that people are so obsessed by genre now because it's a marketing tool, as you said at the beginning, it means that they're not open enough to other genres, to expanding genres. 
Yes, and of course, it, what's ironic is that most of the people who will attack classical music as being an elite institution fail to realize that uh, their notions of value are based on basically capitalist notions of popularity, <laughs> right? And the number of clicks and the number of likes. So these are, you know, they haven't really parsed those notions out for themselves. Um, hopefully they will, because it's getting bad. Yeah, but even even the concept of classical music, classical, goes back to originally the classical era, which is Mozart's time. And on this new record, is this classical music? It's not. It's contemporary music played on an instrument that people have been playing for hundreds of years. Um, that it, It's really hard to, to genreify anything like that. But also, like, I mean, I don't know, a piece like Mozart's Dissonance Quartet. If people, uh, Ralph Kirkpatrick wrote in the 1930s or 40s, he was at a performance of the Budapest String Quartet playing the Dissonance. And he said, we sat there in the hall, and I thought to myself, if people in this hall knew what Mozart was really saying, this concert would be banned right now. Mm. You know, if they really heard what he was saying. So I think the problem with these notions, you know, the problem with making pedestals, the problem with putting Bach on a pedestal or Mozart, like the kind of people who think, oh, Mozart just comes from heaven and it's just perfect. And it's like, dude, the second you do that, you don't, you don't hear them shaking. You, they don't, you know, like, as you may know, I had a, a bit of an incident in Cologne where people were very upset about a piece of music and there was a little bit of a, you know, a Megillah around it and very, people were very upset. And um, what was unfortunate in that concert was that afterwards there was a CPE Bach concerto. That is way more crazy than the Reich piano phase. Like the Reich piano phase is like pretty vanilla, you know, as a work, whereas yeah. the, the CPE Bach is the utterances of a man basically telling his, like giving his father the middle finger, right? And... <laughs> CPE box piano music, well, keyboard music, has this wonderful quirkiness to it that just doesn't fit in any boxes. No, it doesn't. And like, there's quirkiness, but th like this concerto, the, it's Vodken 23 in D minor, it's angry. He's not a, he's like a middle child. And I thought, how unfortunate, all those, all those nice... Cologne, you know, burgers and their wives thought, C.P. Bach, what lovely music. But it was like, no, you idiots. That's the one you should have been protesting. People are schmucks. What can you do? Anyway. Okay. Mahanas Fahani, thank you very much for talking with us. Your new recording is called Music with a Question Mark. It's out on Hyperion Records. I think it'll be out in a couple of days from when we release this podcast. This has been really great to talk to you. Thanks very much. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. I, I hope both of you are... Stay healthy. It's it, take it from me. Normal is not that we want the normal that was there before. There were problems, but <laughs> some sense of yeah feeling like we're going to be okay. It's around the corner. Believe me. Thank you for that. We hope you like what we've been doing with the next track, and if so, we hope that you will consider becoming a Patreon patron of the show. A modest monthly donation of 2 or $3 from you will help support the show so we don't have to chase down sponsors or interrupt the great content that we have for ads. Visit patreon.com slash the next track, and we thank you very much. Now we can do our next tracks. Kirk? 
There's a new album out from one of my favorite performers, Brad Meldow. We were talking in this episode about genres, and Brad Meldow is a jazz pianist, but he also plays sort of classical music and other things. And he wrote a song cycle with Ian Bostridge, who was a guest on this show a while back. Just last week, he came out with a new recording called Sweet April 2020. Sweet April 2020 is something that he wrote in April 2020 when he has been in lockdown with his family in the Netherlands. It's 12 tracks. It's about 30 minutes long. And the record also contains three covers, one by Neil Young, one by Billy Joel, and one by Jerome Kern. This is an extremely personal album. It's very melancholy. It's, I mean, it really does express the COVID lockdown very much. He announced this record about a week ago from when we're recording, and there is a, or there was a 1,000 copy limited vinyl edition that was signed that was selling for $100. All of the money, except for whatever the cost was to ship it, is being given to the Jazz Foundation of America's COVID-19 Musicians Emergency Fund. I naturally bought one right away. I don't know if it's still available. You can listen to this on the streaming services. I think there's going to be a CD release in a month or two, but a beautiful, really personal suite of piano music. Doug, what have you got? I got a rambling story here, one of my rambling discovery stories. I was looking at For You the other day, and maybe you've noticed that they've uh, made the For You page longer and they've put in more suggestions, more rows of things you could listen to. And one of the things I see fairly regularly is Perhaps you'd like to listen to some blues. And, you know, there's a row of blues albums. And one of the things I saw recently was Muddy Waters Essentials. And I thought to myself, well, I'll have a look at this Muddy Waters Essentials and I'll decide what's essential. But anyway, it was a pretty good playlist and I knew pretty much everything on it. But there was a version of a song called I Want to Be Loved. It wasn't the one that I remembered. Um, the one, this one was kind of a slow shuffle. The one I remember was a little bit up tempo. So anyway, I go to the search thing and I enter. I want to be loved. And as I'm doing this, I'm realizing, oh, you know, you're going to get a ton of songs that aren't the Muddy Waters blues song. You're going to get, you know, ballads and country songs and who knows what else. And sure enough, there's a list of 40 songs. I want to be loved. Some of them are definitely blues bands. Some of them are by artists I've never heard of. And so just for laughs, I said, I wonder if this song, and I clicked on a song by a band called Blackstone Cherry, wonder if their version of I want to be loved is a blues song. Well, it is, um, and it was really good. Now, I'd never heard of Blackstone Cherry before. Apparently, they are what I will call a post-grunge hard rock band, which is not exactly my cup of tea. Perhaps if I were younger, I'd be into these guys. I don't know. I haven't even listened to their other albums, but I have listened to their EP, Black to Blues. They do six classic blues covers um, using... Uh, elements of heavy metal and hard rock and but also they have definitely been inspired by a lot of the rock bands i have like led zeppelin and free and uh, deep purple and lots of of, of blues bands you know b-l-o-o-z-e bands um it's a delightful record they do built for comfort uh hoochie coochie man born under a bad sign i want to be loved champagne and reefer and a song by freddie king i didn't know called palace of the king it's a really good record. If you like blues and you're interested in how a hard rock band would interpret blues, this is the shizzle. I was very impressed with it. Now, I haven't listened to any of their other things because I don't want to ruin how I feel about them after listening to this with all their great blues cred. And I don't want to be disappointed by their post-grunge hard rock music. I really like this 21-minute EP. Blackstone Cherry, Black to Blues is my next track. 
This was episode number 186 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.